Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, photographer and writer Roger Vlaitis talks about Greco-mania, including what happened to looted art sent home to enhance the prestige of Venice, and why Lord Elgin lost his wife, diplomatic career, and the tip of his nose. Good evening. Thank you for coming. I'm going to start by saying、um, I want to say a special word of welcome to、um, some of the people who will be listening on our. Podcasts. I get emails sometimes from people in New Zealand and Australia. They're probably asleep now, but they'll get round to this eventually, and hope they'll enjoy it like you will.、Um, I am. I should say that I'm half Greek,、um, and、um, but I was educated in Britain and America. And、um, what I wanted to talk about primarily. There's a theme in this. And am I all right there? Can everybody hear me? And does everybody know? In case of fire, do you know where to escape to? <laughs> Fine, thank you.、Um, there's a phrase by the historian Lord Macaulay that those who do not acquaint themselves with history are in danger of not learning about the mistakes of former times and repeating them. And there are certain elements of this tale which will reflect. What I'm going to do is I take you on a journey of pictures,、uh, taking you through、um, part of the history of Greece, and it will reflect on some. You'll notice that it'll reflect on some of the things that are happening today. Now, obviously, this can't be a current affairs lecture, but I'm looking forward to any comments that people have to make afterwards about that. And so,、um, I'm going to kick off with our first slide. Um, you may know that in Greece today, there's a certain amount of anti-German feeling,、um, and it perhaps goes back, if you will, to the time in 1832 when our Prince Otto of Wittelsberg, who was the brother of、um, Mad King、um, Ludwig of Bavaria, and he was hoisted on、um, the Greeks as a king.、Um, Greece had never really existed, except the only union between Greek peoples had been through either the religion or the language. And Otto, who earned、uh, the nickname of the Abortion,、uh, ran the place or tried to with a regency of Bavarian nobles for thirty years. And during that time,、um, his father had built this extraordinary replica, replica of the Parthenon to commemorate. German heroes of the Napoleonic Wars, also Philolines, Germans who died trying to liberate Greece. It's surprising. We always think of Byron, and certainly the Greeks think of Vironos, Vironos, spelled twenty different ways, of Byron as the savior of of Greece. But more Germans died. As Philolines than any other nationality, and it's surprising how many other nationalities flocked to Greece. Anyhow, this is the dream landscape that Otto von Kleist,、um, the architect, Leo von Kleist, the architect of、uh, the Parthenon, created for the young King Otto. And it, it must say, it's pretty beguiling, isn't it? It shows Athens in the Golden Age. This is meant to be Saint Paul down here. And this is the agora, and this is really what、um, Otto and von Kleist wanted to re- 
recreate. And in the 30 years they were there, they certainly did build some fabulous neoclassical architecture. Um, the sort of buildings which are still in use by people who've squandered most of the money we've given them. Anyhow, let's get back to ancient Greece. The dream of Greece inspired the Philippines is, of course, the Periclean Age. And what is so marvelous about that time is that we've got certain things that come down to us. This coin, for instance, um, an Athenian coin, is pure silver. I photographed it in the British Museum. And when I say it's a coin, it feels and much more like a piece of sculpture. It is so thick and, and incised, it's quite extraordinary. And during this period, Pericles used the funds of um, a league against the Persians um, very controversially to um, rebuild Athens in a lavish style. But several things come down from us. Our love of beauty does not make us soft, and future ages will marvel at us. And these sentiments inspired many people. Of course, these coins were meant to introduce a single currency, but that didn't last after about 30 years. What he built, or had built with three architects, was, of course, the Parthenon. And has anybody here been there? Okay, and it's built more or less without mortar of interlocking joints in marble and um, has to survive earthquakes. It still survives in a way. Um, it's in a terrible condition now. And everything that we see, this marble was all, see today, was all painted in what we might think to be hallucinogen, hallucinogenic colors. And the theory is that in the bright Athenian sunlight, they shimmered and almost looked as though they were moving. Um, it survived a type of Greco-mania under the Romans. Um, the Emperor Augustus made Greek art the official Roman art and collected whatever he could um, to serve as models for Roman carvers. Of course, the interpretation by Roman Romans of Greek models was, was really quite different. And, if, and the marble they used was quite different. Most of the marble, most of the Greek sculpture that we know today is smooth and gleaming white and polished. You can't do that with Greek marble. It's got deposits of uh, iron and salts in it, and it doesn't polish smooth. When it was used, the Greeks would very often fill it in with, with a gesso and then paint it. Um, but this is... this. More or less survived more or less intact until it was pillaged by the Goths in, I think it was, um, 267 AD. Extraordinary thing about the Parthenon, when I worked there for a summer, and it was the amount of carvings all over it. And these are Byzantine carvings you see here. Um, and there are over 200 of those, and we don't know how many more have disappeared. And lots of crosses that go back probably to crusader times. It, the, the Emperor Theodosius made it into a, a Christian basilica, one of the largest in the East. Um, it became a pilgrimage site, and, and then it became a citadel for the Frankish crusaders, 
who work um, mainly from France, but a lot from what is France and Germany didn't exist, let's face it, um, Northern European Gothic Crusaders. Now, I was mentioning to Jude who, earlier, who's a specialist lecturer in Islamic studies here, that one of the most extraordinary things about the Parthenon is that when it was converted into a, from a Christian basilica into a mosque, most of it was left intact. And we have astonishing accounts um, by this, this chap, Evidi Salibi. Salibi just means celebrated, but this was his name, a travel writer of the 1670s, um, who describes his gilded ceilings, his painted frescoes, and the sculpture. And you'd, you would have thought that uh, Muslims would have destroyed these, but no, it was forbidden to touch. Um, and he describes it as... No such sparkling and luminous mosques exist anywhere else, none with so many artful and individual and exemplary illustrations. Um, 1674, we had Jacques Carey, the French ambassador. There was a long, um, it was, it's called the Lily Crescent Alliance, a long alliance between the French and, and the Ottomans. And he was allowed to bring in somebody to draw um, Jack Carey, um, to, to do some of these extraordinary drawings. Um, and um, he was told at the time that it was forbidden to deface the, um, the mosque, uh, which had been, and it was called the Temple of the Idols, which is really quite surprising. Now, when do the British come into it? They come into it in 1682, if they didn't come into it as crusaders. We had this extraordinary man called George Wheeler, who published a book, um, A Journey into Greece. And he did that with a Dr. Spon of Lyon. And he not only wrote a botanical survey of, of Greece and Western Turkey, but he described it as the world's most wondrous mosque, and he described the Parthenon, that is. And he also put in little details such as Athens, which had a population of, he estimated, 6,000, only had a garrison in the Acropolis of 400 Ottoman soldiers who were mainly Albanians. That got the notice of the Venetians, and we had uh, the Captain General or the Admiral Morrisoni sent out in a rather sort of typical commercial enterprise by the, by the Venetians of the period. Rather than risk their own men, they, sent, they gathered together a Christian alliance from all over Europe, and they got a, a German general from the Swedish army with Joyce in the name of Count Otto von Konigsmark, to get together this mercenary band of Christians to come and liberate Athens. And according to Marasoni and one of his captains, his engineers, this is the depiction of when fortuitously, which is an unfortunate word, um, a shell fired by a German mortarman hit the Parthenon itself. The Parthenon was then being used, the mosque was being used as a magazine for the gunpowder. And according to the 
the Ottoman accounts, they'd only moved it there because they never thought anybody would want to blow it up. So we have a certain irony in 20% of the, of the Parthenon disappearing when they're trying to liberate Athens. A lot of it's left open after that to the elements and various loot was taken away. Um, we had at least five different heads. Um, Morrisoni was asked uh, to collect the most artistically vigorous sculpture to enhance our prestige and create an immortal monument to our distinguished virtue. Having tried to remove the largest sculpture from the pediment, um, his tackle broke and that was shattered. And so Morrisoni went around and collected every lion he could possibly find in Athens and in the port and in the Greek islands. And those grace, they're still outside the Arsenale in Venice today. And they look fabulous, and um, I, as far as I know, nobody's asking for them back, but they, it is a moment in history which is celebrated by that. Several of these heads ended up in Denmark, um, in the Vatican, one is now in the Louvre, and they found one about 20 years ago. They found, when dredging the Piraeus, the port, the port outside Athens, they found another head, which somebody had just dropped off the boat on his way home, and that is now in the Acropolis Museum. Um, I'm delighted to tell you that there were more Greco uh, English Greco-Maniacs, an Englishman and a Scot, um, who were um, James Stewart, who earned the name Athenian Stewart, and Nicholas Revit. They came along in 1751, and um, I Unfortunately, they, they simply were not given the access that they wanted to the monuments because they weren't French. <laughs> and they made great complaints about that. Um, and it took them 12 years to publish what was really a superb volume of drawings and very scholarly. And in the meantime, a delightful French architect called Julien David Leroy got in and published his four years later, um, well before um, the um, student Revit had published theirs. So there was a kind of war going on, cultural war between the French and the English as to who had sort of cultural ownership of, of these things that were held by the Ottomans. And they produced this kind of thing, um, which was hand-colored by Leroy, was treated was, was criticized scathingly by, by James Stewart. And eventually the competition hotted up and they both produced, oh, excuse me, oh, I'm missing one. They both produced stuff like that. This is Leroy. And um, now these volumes of measured drawings went right round, um, round Europe. Every man of virtue, which was a collector or an antiquarian of those days, wanted a copy of these. You can still buy them. And they're rather beautiful. Um, now, along comes Thomas Bruce's seventh Earl of Elgin and his wife Mary Nesbitt. Now, we can say about them, and he's sort of, well, what I have to say is that he abandoned his army career through ill health. He had chronic asthma. But he did have a number of wonderful connections at court and managed to get himself um, 
appointed as ambassador to Constantinople. At the time, this was available only to wealthy people, this sort of position, because you were given an, maybe 6,000 a year is what he was given, and that would have been gone very quickly, and then you provided your own money. And um, in Elgin's case, he had no money of his own. He had esteemed position in Scotland, but he had a wife who was one of the wealthiest young women in the country. And Mary Nesbitt um, paid for most of it with her, her parents. His idea before he left was to bring Greece to Scotland. He wanted to do measured drawings that would compete with anything the French and his compatriots were doing. Maybe he didn't know that it had all been done before. And anyhow, the idea was to make them the envy of society because nobody else would own anything like that or be, um, have any, any artifacts from ancient Greece. Um, however, Mary's father distrusted him. He'd had a number of, he didn't show much signs of financial acumen and rather surprisingly he gave them only 10,000 pounds and um, they had to um, um, live on the interest of that. Now, Elgin arrives at a time when, thanks to British arms, um, the French had been defeated. Um, Napoleon had invaded his allies' territory. And the French were very keen, sorry, the, the Ottomans were very keen on the British for a few years. Elgin managed to overspend his funds almost immediately. I mean, in good works, some of which sponsored by Mary Nesbitt. I mean, for instance, it was common for Sally pirates and uh, Moorish pirates to take, invade any, anywhere from Cornwall through the Med, take people and sell them into slavery. And they attacked Malta several times and Mary Nesbitt got her father to put up 14,000 pounds to buy a number of British people who were captured in Malta, in Malta out of slavery pretty soon after she arrived. But what was clear is that he thought nothing of collecting sculpture. Where every, I mean, he thought the world of collecting sculpture. He wanted as much as possible. And that's what he starts to do as soon as he arrives. Um, when he comes to Athens... Very shortly after, I think it was the second year of his ambassadorship, what he finds is that this chap has been there before and got a firman, a permission from the Ottoman. This is the former French ambassador, Clauso Gualfier, and um, he was allowed to take anything that had fallen from the Parthenon, which, which he did. And um, he had um, a man who'd helped him do the drawings for his book, who he appointed as French consul in Athens. And that, and together, they had a collection um, which Elgin coveted. So Elgin goes off and gets a firman. And the firman is pretty, well, dubiously worded. It was written in Italian, it was written in Ottoman, in, in Turkish, translated into Italian, and then retranslated into English. And there are three versions of it. 
and um, it's up to you and your um, patriotism, patriotism, perhaps, whether you think that he um, carried it out to the letter. It seems pretty clear that what the Furman says, that he was allowed to remove pieces that they found from the citadel of the Acropolis, it was still a Turkish fortress, for the purposes of drawing. However, 300 men were employed, and they cut, carried away whatever they could. And um, whenever they were, the local vaivod, the Turkish um, governor, um, protested a certain amount of diplomacy and threats were used to persuade them that they should carry on being allowed to um, take whatever they wanted. And the Reverend, the, the Elgin's chaplain, the Reverend Philip Hunt, is an extraordinary character. Um, he was asked to collect marble columns of every different period and material and style from throughout what had been former Greece <coughs> to create um, the entrance pole of the Elgin's man mansion. And it sounds rather tasteless, but it may have been rather wonderful, but there would be porphyry and white marble, etc. And he goes steaming off and doing that. He also manages to, to borrow um, five Bibles or New Testaments, which he never returned, and they are still in the possession of the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury's library um, and um, at Lambeth. Um, Anyhow, we, Elgin's are moving through. Um, he has a number. Um, this gives you an idea of what's going on at the time. What's one of the few drawings by a superb Italian artist called Lucieri, who never seemed to finish much. Um, and um, the drawing, the firm, as it says, it permits drawing, measuring, mold making, and the removal of some pieces of stone. They took whatever they could. And what we, the, the reaction by a number of prominent Greco-maniacs, if you like, um, certainly Philhellenes who visited, one was, um, and noticed this, where they, they wrote down their, um, their feelings about it. One was Daniel Clark of, of Jesus College, Cambridge, and um, we'll see the other in a minute. Lucieri wrote to Elgin, who was back in Constantinople at this time, about a certain piece causing him much trouble. And what he's referring to is the fact that he, they had to remove the cornice above to remove this metope. And that meant destroying a lot of the interlocking structure of, of the building. And um, the, the chances were that, that it, was, it was more unstable as a result. Anyhow, that's one of the metopes, and this is what Dr. Clark wrote. I saw a marvelous sculpture being hauled from its position crumble and collapse noisily on the ground. The Turkish Dishgar Aga, seeing this profanity, removed the pipe from his mouth and with his eyes full of tears, stated resolutely, resolutely, that is it. That is the end. Finished. He went on to declare that he would not permit the destruction to continue. But the distar was poor, and I had to sustain a family. He could not resist the temptation of accepting money and brilliant promises. So he was eventually dissuaded. One of the, besides sack pockets of money, one of the things that Elgin's men were distributing were gold watches, and they provided a town clock. This is a drawing by Edward Dodwell. 
an Irish-born British art watercolorist. And, I, and what I want to point out to you here is one of these caryatids has been removed, and it's been replaced with a brick pillar. And they also removed one of the Corinthian columns later. Now, Dodwell was appalled. But when he got into a conversation with Lucieri, who was the sort of agent manager of works, he realized that he was lucky. Because what Elgin had asked for is a British warship to come and collect the whole damn thing. And Nelson and the, the, the British Navy were involved in wars, in Napoleonic wars, but when not doing that, policing the Med and pursuing British interests in, in, in a positive way, and they simply didn't have the time or... Um, the only few objects of, I think it was 800 cases that the Elgins collected, that only a few warships were persuaded to take a few things back with them. So happily, the Erechtheum survived. The column, the pillar of, is now in the British Museum. Um, we see collection, it, when the time the collection grew to 220 cases, and he couldn't get it away, the Elgins decided to buy a boat, and Mary persuaded her um, parents to cough up the money, and this brig was loaded up with, and sailed, taking some of the collection back to Britain, and ran into a storm, and went aground in the, in the harbor of an island called Kithira, Sirigo which some of you may know from, it's Othello's, Othello is set on, um, was the, in, in Shakespeare, he, that, was, um, that was where he was admiral. Um, anyhow, um, it takes Elgin and his team about two years to recover all of that sculpture, um, and lost a ship, and in the meantime they chartered another ship, and that ran aground outside the Piraeus. He wasn't having much luck, Elgin. In fact, he had a lot of bad luck, and you begin to feel terribly sorry for him. Um, he suffered from the chronic asthma, and to cure that, he was advised to use mercury. And so he would put it on a mask and pour it over his face, and it would go down his throat. And his, he developed one mass of sores right down his throat. It began to eat away at his cheek, and a piece of his nose had to be removed by a doctor. And for a while, according to his letters to his mother, he had to wear a leather mask when in public. Not often you see a British ambassador wearing a mask. Um, worse than that, um, he set off at the end of his ambassadorships through and during a treaty, a treaty, a treaty and arrives in France to find that Napoleon specifically demands that he be retained, and he has to stay in France for the next three years. The French ambassador who we spoke about, the Count, had stayed out of France because he feared Napoleon, but he sent, he managed to send some of his collection back, only to find it was promptly confiscated by Napoleon for, out of, for national prestige, particularly that he was looking for something from the Parthenon. Um, and then what happens is that Elgin meets 
the count in France, and they have a long discussion, and, and he asks him to help him recover this, his private property, and Elgin agrees. This is the French ambassador's, the French consul, Fauvel, in Athens. And this is his porch over underneath the Acropolis. And we can see here that metope, which is now in the, in the British Museum. And um, fog of war, perhaps. The crates that, they, some of the crates going to France were captured by an English Warship. They were sent um, to Malta and then from Malta back to England. They had to be auctioned in England uh, because Nelson insisted that all prize, prize money should go to the crew. However, when they got there, uh, Elgin writes to Nelson and, and writes to the British government and says, we want these, this piece of the Parthenon for national prestige. The government say, no, thank you very much. Don't want it. And it sits for six years in a custom shed until he comes along and manages to get it for 24 quid. <coughs> and um, when Clotel Gloufier and Fauvel found out about it, they were absolutely appalled. They accused him of double dealing. And actually, this painting was painted 23, 23 years after the event. The, the, it really wrangled with the French. Um, Mary goes back to England while um, Elgin is being held. Unfortunately, um, she writes to him and says that she doesn't want to have any conjugal rights with any, him anymore. She may have suspected that the sores were syphilis. We don't know. Um, they certainly had a rambunctious relationship by this time. And um, when he returns, he finally finds finds that she's been having an affair, or he thinks she's been having an affair, and insists on divorcing her. Well, this is a major scandal, and because um, he's after compensation from her parents, it has to be settled in not only the House in Parliament, but also in, under Scottish law. Elgin doesn't, by suing his wife, loses whatever money he may have hoped for. And he has not managed, by 18, I think it's 1810, he still hasn't managed to get half of his collection home. When he has a correspondence with Spencer Percival, the prime minister of the time, who points out that they've had a number of complaints from the Ottomans, that he'd misused his privileges. And Elgin claims that the persons who had sold these marbles to me um, claimed they had the right, but anyway, it was equivocal. He asked the British government for 90,000 pounds. Percival says, I think that 30,000 seems more reasonable. And eventually, Elgin goes away. He's practically bankrupt. But what happens is that within a month or two, uh, the Controller General writes and asks for 10,000 of his expenses to be sent back. Elgin then offers the entire co the collection up as surety, and he's lost control of it. How are we doing on time? Another 10 minutes. Okay, fine. Along comes Byron. Now, Byron is had been to Greece 
twice, and he, as he, he put it, he wasn't very famous at the time. He said he went to bed um, a normal person, woke up famous. He, let, he, was, he saw what had happened to the Parthenon, and he was appalled. He saw it before and afterwards. And whilst he'd gone to a place like Sunion and carved his name there, he didn't try to steal a temple. And when Child Howard came out, he accuses Elgin of st- taking the last poor plunder from a bleeding land, destroying what Goth and Turk and time hath spared. And then it's, if anybody hears Scottish, you should never read this poem. He is so anti-Scottish, it's unbelievable. Um, he says, cold as the crags upon his native coast, his mind is barren and his heart as hard. He also quotes people in his notes saying the Greeks in Athens have told him Lord Elgin may now boast of having ruined Athens. Then he writes another poem which is privately circulated but somehow it leaks out amongst Philonines in Baltimore of all places. And in it he has Minerva or Athena accuse him of the one unforgivable sin amongst the Greek gods is hubris, and says, so let him stand through ages yet unborn, fixed statue on the pedicle of scorn. Back at home, it's about 1811, and there are terrible political problems, and, and Gilray does this cartoon, which is basically saying, he's protesting about funds being provided to buy Elgin's collection. He's saying, some of these characters are saying, give us bread, not stone. However, in 1816, after much wrangling, they vote only 30,000 pounds. Elgin has to accept. But what he does get in compensation is that the collection will always be called the Elgin Marbles in all literature and by the government, and that there will always be one of his descendants as a trustee of the British Museum, which there is today. People come, and there are extraordinary... um, People like Benjamin Hayden draws by lamplight and candlelight there. Certain people are absolutely fascinated by what they see. Um, This is Hayden's drawing, and that's... Keats on first seeing the Elgin marbles at the day, uh, that day, and he, but he describes them rather two-edged sword. This he says, like a sick eagle, he feels like a sick eagle looking at the sky, as though they're sort of flightless birds; they're out of place. Byron describes them as a freak show; thinks they shouldn't be there, separated from Greek light and the context, and he feels that people should be allowed to go and see them, even in their ruined state on the Parthenon, he feels that that was essential for people, and it's gone. Anyhow, what was the value when he sells it for £30,000? One way of getting that is that we've got, between the previous 20 years, we've had a number of collectors from all over Europe, and they go and they find, whatever they find, they're archaeologists, but whatever they find, they sell. And uh, they, uh, the biggest buyer is uh, the king of Bavaria, who builds this museum of Greek art in the style of by von Kleins again. And here he is with his new collection. 
and so a good example of the particular price of a metope comes from this painting, which was by a French academist in Turpidge Degrees, beautiful painting, and right there you can see that there's a fallen metope. And as you remember, the French were allowed to collect the ones that are fallen. And it apparently had fallen in a thunderstorm. That's it. And it had been hidden by Fauvel and not sent back to France until Napoleon had been deposed. And he, by the time it goes, that his cross of Rochefellers died. And it is offered on the open market, and two bidders are the Louvre and King Ludwig of Bavaria. And they pay 24,000 francs, about 1,500 pounds, or 5% of what the Parliament paid for the Elgin Marbles. And the Elgin Marbles have actually got, I think, 19 metopes, and this is only one. So you could say... They got it at a good price, or a steal. Following, shortly following on the steps of all this is the re revolution in Greece, the rebellion. And um, some of these characters, I think we might recognize their faces even today. A lot of them are Albanians. Very few of them look like heroic Hellenes. This chap here does. Um, it's one of the few um, to be blonde and blue-eyed. Um, from all over Europe, people are flocking to help them. Oh, this, by the way, is the Greek Bodicea. She's on banknotes, stamps. Her name is Bubulina Lascarina. Um, she purchased her own fleet, in effect, and harass the Turks in a way that, or the Ottomans in a way that they simply couldn't believe. And Byron arrives. Now, in all of Byron's writings, and um, this portrait he has painted of himself in Italy before he leaves, got little bits of classical ruins in it. As far as he's concerned, and the other Philhellenes, Greece is somehow, and these rebels, they've all somehow read Aristotle and Thucydides, um, but of course they knew nothing about that, most of them. And anyway, Byron arrives and we can see people cheering. These are Suliotis. Um, they're a type of tribal brigand who even the Ottomans couldn't suppress. And they're cheering because Byron's brought his money chest. And in fact, he's it persuaded to take 40 of them as his bodyguard, and they sleep on his money chest. By the way, Byron um, arrives with not only, I think it was his doctor, five servants, um, a laundress, and his dogs. Unfortunately, he got pretty fed up uh, with the revolutionaries, who were always depicted with ruins in the background, and he dies. Rather symbolically, this is by a, a um, Belgian artist. And of course, where he dies, Mr. Lonely, I don't know if you've been there, it, it is a malarial mud, uh, just a landscape of mud, and it was a 
terrible place, and there are no classical ruins. The Philly. The word spreads, the Philadines are coming from all over Europe, and in Paris there are postcards of Byron. He's translated into eight languages. Now, curious things happened. The Missolonghi, where he died, there was a rout. The Ottomans won, and this man survives. His, he was an illiterate peasant, and his name is Yanis Macrianis. And when he found two men, two of his soldiers, he went on to become a general, and when he finds these two soldiers trying to sell some sculpture, he says, you must not let these things go, for, not for any price. You must not let them leave the country. Remember, we fought for them too. And that's the kind of, that sentiment has remained amongst Greeks right to the day. I mean, uh, say many of them just want their stuff back because of, particularly if it's to do with the Parthenon. They don't mind about the other places anything like as much. This splendid gentleman was, was um, Odysseus. He was a brigand as well. He'd been trained by the British, joined the British army when he fled the Ottomans, came back and captured um, the Parthenon. And then one morning they woke up um, and found that he was hanging from the battlements. Some rivals, rival revolutionaries got rid of him. Parthenon, the British government manages to persuade the Turks to give a firm and say that they will not damage it in any of attempts to recapture it. I think it's a marvelous thing that they did. And whilst there are accounts by the Greeks that up to 800 cannonballs were fired at it in a day, and when you go to the Parthenon, they got no shortage of mounds of cannonballs, very little damage seemed to have been done. Now, um, military historians point point out that the, the, the Turks were the worst gunners in history, but that can't really be true. Uh, maybe they weren't trying to, to hit it. Anyhow, this is um, at the end of Mon Greece is born in 1829 at the end of the Civil War and a lot of the Philodines are buried in front of the Theseum here, about 400 of them are buried throughout Greece, and I think a good quantity of them are here. But, and Leo von Kleitz becomes cultural advisor, advises King Otto to get rid of all Byzantine, all Crusader, all Ottoman traces from around the Parthenon, which he does, and they soon mount up. Nobody knows what to do with them, and schools of archaeology are set up by the British, the French, the Americans, the Germans. They all come and um, try to house these sculptures, some of which you may recognize. I find this fascinating. Within a few years, more tourists wanted to come back to Greece, but um, this Italian painter, Raffaele Ciccioli, describes in 1841 how he needed bodyguards wherever he went because it was just sheer anarchy. And you can see his bodyguards. And French travelers report that the bandits in Greece would not only take your money or your life, they would take your money and your life. They'd tie you to a tree and leave you there. And um, there was this, got to the point when Otto was deposed, Queen Victoria was asked if she would consent to letting her nephew become king of Greece, and she said no. <laughs> it was too anarchic. However, Florence Nightingale visits. 
She did have to be rescued from a gang of street urchins who were pelting her with stones, but she managed to find a lovely Athenian owl in the ruins of the Acropolis. It fell down, and she put it in her pocket, and it became her pet, and it survives in stuffed form in her museum. Oh, by the way, her sister is called Parthenella. 1860s, 70s, well, at the time, this painting by an American is a, painted, the, tourism is in full swing. And we have, in spite of the fact that it's denuded by, of its sculpture, we still have something in this architecture, something of the grandeur, something that sings to people, that speaks to people in these ruins. And as this painter describes it, he saw, saw it as the culmination of genius of man and architecture. When he's only looking at the bones of it, really. So, I'm going to round up with what effect it might have had in Britain. The, Parth the Elgin marbles or the Parthenon marbles, as I prefer to call them, some people do. Um, and what we see here is the Caryatid, which was taken by Lucieri, and that's the original port, that's the porch as it looks today. It's had a lot of air, air pollution, but, and then we have here St. Mary's pancreas, I believe it's called, where they tried to make a copy of it. And it, I don't know what you think about it, but is it fair to say that this is fairly lumpen compared to the fine lines, even in, that we see here in the destroyed one? It doesn't seem to work for me, but I'm, anyhow. This is, um, the Athenaeum Club, and when it was built, fully 5% of the budget went on the frieze, which is a more or less exact copy of the Parthenon frieze, and where they couldn't get bits um, from the British Museum, which owns most of it, over half the frieze, they got them from Jack Carey's drawing, or they, got, they went back and they did drawings on the Parthenon, and, but anyway, I think what was interesting is that when it opened in a hot summer, um, one of the members wrote this in the book, referring to the architect. I am Decimus Burton. I do as I please. Instead of an ice house, I gave you a freeze. Um, by 1820, whilst Robert Smirk, who Elgin had tried to get as one of his artists, um, had designed the British Museum, in a neoclassical style, which is not really Greek, it's elongated and more imperial. Um, when they're building the British, the, the Houses of Parliament, they go for the new Gothic style. They regard that as more English, and Ruskin is pushing for it, etc. But in the exhibition of 1851, we actually see neoclassicism, the Parthenon frieze, reduced to a kind of wallpaper. Well, it is wallpaper. And this is still in the, the V&A, this wallpaper. It's beautiful wallpaper, but it's just wallpaper. Neoclassicism was a spent force, more or less. We do have moments, I mean, an American artist who won a, a medal at the Royal Academy did that, and it's clearly based on Cellini's horse, and he admitted it. And we have a Frenchman who produces um, both very enterprising, he produces casts, and a drawing course, and his name is Barg, and he actually, Barg actually taught Van Gogh to draw um, in Paris, which is quite bizarre. Now, this is Sir Lawrence Alma Tadima, rather, rather splendid painting from the high Victorian period, and it shows Pericles 
showing people around, letting them see the painted frieze in the Parthenon. I don't know if he was aware, but when Plutarch wrote about this, one of the things that Phidias and Pericles were accused of is having um, seduced um, Athenian, virtuous Athenian women by simply taking them up there and showing them the sculptures. Um, we have George Frederick Watts, a painting called Hope. He declared that his only teacher were the Parthen, was the Parthenon marbles, and I think he spent 20 years working on that sculpture, which is now in Kensington Gardens. It's also in Rhodesia, where uh, it's the Cecil Road monument. Um, now, he concentrated on Selina's horse and the torso of um, Dionysus, I believe, and somehow he couldn't quite get him to marry up, although there are people in this audience I've talked to before who told me how marvelous it is. Um, but anyhow, Watts. Um, today... The British Museum has 247 feet of the frieze, 15 out of the 19 metops, and um, it's in good condition in spite of having been pretty suffered the indignity of being cleaned and scraped so that it would look whiter and more like Italian marble. Um, and that happened twice, and the British Museum now lament that. In Athens, we have a museum which was largely provided by German money, and most of what remained has been removed, cast or replaced, and we, they're asking for anything that is anything to do with the Parthen Parthenon that is held in foreign countries to be on permanent loan. They're not asking for it back. They forget about ownership. They just want it back, and they'll lend anything in return that you would want from ancient Greece. Um, however, um, the British Museum said no, and I would imagine in today's climate of economic climate, they'll, they'll continue to say no. So we've, ending now, we've had two Maury polls where we asked the British public what they thought, and in both of these, something like 40% felt that they might as well go back. Five million people visit the British Museum every year. Quite possibly, most of those see the Parthenon marbles. Um, and this is the end of my lecture, and it's time for you to ask questions or make comments. Thank you very much. Thank you.